0: Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the HypnoDojo, a place of learning for practitioners and students of hypnotherapy. Get your black belt in all things hypnotherapy as we whip into shape your mindset, mastery, and marketing. Relax, enjoy, learn. Here's your sensei, Linda Campbell. Boom, boom, a like a boom Hello and welcome to the Hypno Dojo. I'm Linda Campbell. I'm the president of the Canadian Association of Counseling Hypnotherapists and Educators. And I also run my own hypnotherapy school, the Horizon Center. Uh, I'm excited to share this topic with you today. This topic came out of a conversation that I had with one of the classes that I'm currently teaching. We started talking about the occupational hazards of being a hypnotherapist and Initially, I was kind of approaching it in sort of a joking way, but the deeper we got into the conversation, the more I realized there actually are a lot of occupational hazards. And if you know the pitfalls of this profession, then you can head them off. You know, kind of like baby proofing you want to put up the gate before the baby falls down the stairs. Uh, Counseling and therapy is one of the professions that has the greatest burnout rate. Uh, I think hypnosis is different. If you're properly trained, people should be getting results within the first two or three sessions. Uh, However, for people that are not properly trained or haven't taken into consideration some of the challenges that could arise and how best to deal with them, uh, there could be burnout. So I used to joke that the occupational hazard of doing hypnosis was being repetitive. In hypnosis, of course, we do a lot of compounding of suggestions. We find several ways to say the same thing. We repeat ourselves. We make the same point a few different ways to help it to really stick. We're redundant. We're repetitive. We have a tendency to say the same thing over and over and over. See what I did just there? (laughs) But it is actually a bit of an occupational hazard. It has become so normal for me for the six, eight hours a day, however long it is that I am working with clients to be repetitive, that it actually has kind of bled over into my private life and I have to actually work (laughs) consciously to say something only once and then just let it go. So there could be times where I look bitchy or naggy because I'm saying the same thing over and over, but really it's just that I'm kind of stuck in that hypnosis groove. So I used to joke that that was the occupational hazard. But again, as I mentioned during the conversation I was having with my class, we actually came up with some more potentially hazardous occupational hazards. One of those that again has a few different implications is the tendency to focus on others instead of on ourselves. So because we get so much satisfaction and meaning from helping others, it can be really seductive to continue to do so in our personal lives. Focusing on other people can also be a great way to avoid our own lives and our own issues. As long as I'm focusing on your problems, I don't have to think about or work on my own. So we can use this involvement with somebody else's challenges as a way of not looking at the things that we need to address in our own lives. We can also overfocus on a family member or a friend or a partner's problems on their challenges and step in where perhaps we aren't wanted. Nobody likes unsolicited advice. But when you're used to being a therapist over the course of the day and offering advice or opinion or piecing things together for people, sometimes it can be difficult to shut this off when we return to our personal lives. In my training, we talk about the difference between how we interact with clients and how we interact with family and friends and develop rituals for sort of putting on and removing the therapist role so that you can create a clear delineation between your work life and your personal life. With friends and family, we're not necessarily, you know, in a position to offer them advice or to be strategizing solutions for them like we are with our, uh, or like we should be with our clients. And with our family and friends, it's okay for us to say, ah, that's a stupid opinion, or I disagree with you, or to bring in our own um, ideas and judgments. And of course, we can't do that with our clients, we have to be all about that, we have to leave our own judgments and opinions out of it. So we talk in the course about how we interact differently with clients versus with family and friends. And again, how we can uh, develop some rituals around embodying the role of therapist so that you're not taking your work home with you at the end of the day. One of the things that I do, I walk to work. I only live about a five-minute walk from my office, and I actually call it switching on and switching off. So as I'm walking to work in the morning, I switch on. I focus on the day ahead of me. I do this little private, um, you know, kind of, Uh, not mantra, prayer almost, asking the powers that be to sort of work through me and help me to resolve what's going on for the client, to help me to, you know, take them to whatever the highest level of self-awareness or um, functioning that they can possibly be at. So as I'm walking to work, I'm switching over from my personal life to my work life by doing this kind of mantra. And as I walk home, I actually imagine that the wind or the air are just is just blowing off of me any of the details of the day, anything that belongs to my client, my client's energy, their challenges, their problems, so that by the time I get home, it's all being kind of blown away. Um, I've also been known to set rules for myself that my nine to five hours are all about other people, so working with my clients or my students, answering my emails, taking care of all of those things, but after five o'clock or six o'clock or seven, whenever I'm home, it's all about me. And this is my way of ensuring that I'm taking care of myself, that I'm focusing on my own challenges and my own goals, and I'm having downtime, and I'm not feeling out of balance. I have to be really careful to preserve my me time. I spend all day doing things for other people, focusing on their goals and supporting them. That I can sometimes feel burdened if a friend wants to set a date to meet for coffee or dinner, because it feels like another chunk of my time is being taken up by somebody else that, you know, more and more of my day gets eaten into where I don't really have the choice, so to speak, about how to spend my time. I'm spending it doing things for others. But don't get me wrong. I love working with my clients. I feel honored that they're entrusting me to help them. But I do really need to focus on having balance. I need to make sure that I have plenty of unscheduled, unaccounted for time where I can check in with myself and ask, what do I need right now? And that I'm leaving my work at work and also focusing on my own goals instead of trying to fix all the people around me. So that's one of the occupational hazards, the tendency to focus on others instead of on self. Another occupational hazard is being intolerant of people in my personal life, and this can bleed over into my work life, too, being intolerant of people not doing their work. So I really respect and admire my clients. I spend all day with people who are just bearing their souls to me, often telling me things that they've never told anyone else. I see people who have had incredible traumatic backgrounds, who have been through just unimaginable things. The stories I hear are just amazing. And yet, here they are trying their hardest to resolve their challenges. They're committed to their growth. They see no other option but to keep moving forward, even if there's pain in that. So when it comes to my personal life, I can be somewhat impatient and intolerant of people who aren't willing to look deep, who aren't willing to be accountable and to do their own work. I kind of hold the people around me to this standard of accountability that I see in my clients. A student of mine years ago told me that she'll let people complain to her in her personal life about the same thing twice. If they attempt a third time, she tells them that unless they want to discuss what they can do to change the situation, she's not going to listen. I totally get it. (laughs) When it comes to our clients, we're helping them move forward. We're helping them get unstuck. We're going into those hard, painful places and doing the deep work. And so when it comes to the people around me, I again, I have this impatience and intolerance with people just kind of, you know, I don't know, floundering, not actually doing their deep work. Um, A couple more occupational hazards that are sort of two ends of the same stick or two different ends of the same stick. Uh, One is the God complex. So when you're helping people get over things that have had them stuck for years, maybe even decades, you can develop a bit of a God complex. I learned over the years that as soon as I get cocky, I start thinking, damn girl, you're pretty good at this. The universe sends me a client to challenge me and I get knocked off the pedestal that I put myself on So, again, I've made it a practice to either during my walk or during a meditation in the morning to ask the powers that be to work through me, to use me to help people that I will see today, help me to say and do whatever's in their best interest, help them achieve what they're here to achieve, um, to use me as a vessel for the work of the universe. And this ritual helps me to remember that the work I'm doing is coming through me, not from me. It reminds me not to take credit for the client's results because they wouldn't be getting results if it weren't for their willingness and their readiness and their perseverance and their openness. I can't get a result with a client who's insistent that they don't want to change. And so this mindset, this ritual of asking the universe to work through me is a good one for combating the God complex and staying humble and grateful and appreciative. Now, on the other end of that same stick, we've got the I'm a failure complex. So I just talked about how we can develop a God complex when the client gets results. We can also develop a failure complex when they don't. We begin to doubt ourselves. We begin to doubt our techniques. We wonder if maybe we're not properly trained or we should go back to our nine-to-five job. Um, The problem is, either way, we're taking responsibility for the client's results when, in fact, the the results are up to the client. Obviously, you need to be well-trained, but there are many, many factors that influence whether the client gets results that go way beyond your skill. These can be things like the client's level of motivation. You could put me in the hypnosis chair and tell me I'm going to be the world's best football player, and we're not going to get anywhere because I have no desire, no interest in being a football player. So the client obviously has to be motivated. doesn't matter how good your skill is. If the client doesn't really want to achieve their goal for whatever reason, you're not going to get anywhere. Another factor that could influence whether the client gets results is whether the client has supportive people or sabotaging people in their lives. Uh, occasionally I've got a client who for whatever reason has a spouse or a child or whatever that doesn't really want them to get better. So I've had the weight loss client whose boyfriend starts bringing home donuts when she starts losing weight because on some level consciously or unconsciously he's fearful that if she changes it's going to change the dynamic of their relationship she might not need him or want him anymore. So if the client has sabotaging people in their lives and it becomes evident to them that in order to change, they are going to have to let go of people, some people will actually opt out of changing because it's just the stakes are too high. Of course, if the client has uh, fears about what it's going to be like to change, that can affect whether they get results, the client's belief in their ability to change. One of the very first things that I work on is helping the client to accept the idea that change is possible for them. I use an analogy of digging with a backhoe versus digging with a plastic spoon to point out that even though the client may have done a lot of work on their goal, they've not used hypnosis. So they're using a different tool and thereby can expect different results. A lot of clients who come to see me have done tons of counseling and used all kinds of other modalities but obviously are still stuck. So not only do they have their original problem now on top of it, they also have a belief that they're really hard nuts to crack, that they're really challenging and that belief can impact on their ability to change. It becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. There could also be um, a client who identifies with their problem. Who would I be without my weight or without my pain or without my phobia or what have you? So, Again, just keep in mind that there are many, many factors that influence whether the client gets results that have nothing to do with how skilled you are as a hypnotherapist. So, just like we shouldn't be taking credit for the client's accomplishment in hypnosis, we also shouldn't be taking credit for the client failing to accomplish what they want to in hypnosis. I teach my students to be able to identify whatever is keeping the client stuck so they can move the client past those stuck places. But again, a client has to want the change and be willing to do the work in order to make those changes and get the results they want. So again, it's useful to keep in mind that whether the client succeeds or fails is up to them, up to the client. We as hypnotherapists are facilitators or kind of co-conspirators, but we're not responsible for their results. They're responsible for that. Another one of the occupational hazards is people in your muggle life, in your regular life, not getting it, not understanding what it is you do, and the impact that that can um, have on your confidence. Now, I've been doing hypnotherapy for so long, it's almost 19 years now, that it's hard for me to remember what that challenge was like, Uh, but it's one that came up in my class. One of my students brought this up when we were discussing occupational hazards, So they mentioned how some of them have friends and family who don't really understand hypnotherapy, may even dismiss it, and that until one feels confident with this modality, it can lead to them having doubts and losing their confidence. So if you're kind of shaky, you're just getting the hang of doing hypnosis, and you have somebody in your life who's undermining you, who's telling you it doesn't work, or who's telling you you're no good at it or whatever, again, that can really be a hazard. We need to have supportive people around us. Until such time we can believe in the hypnosis, we're getting consistent results, and we no longer question if it works, other people and their misconceptions and their misunderstanding and their non-belief can start to chip away at you. When we meet for a training on the weekends, it really is a magical experience. It's like a group of like-minded folks, usually the woo-woos or black sheep in their family. We get together. We talk about all of this amazing hypnotic phenomena. We do sessions on each other that yield really impressive results. We discuss topics that most people never talk about, and it's really energizing and exciting and liberating and eye-opening. And then they go back to their lives, back to the muggles who have such huge misunderstanding as to what hypnosis is and isn't. And it's hard to explain to somebody exactly what happens in class or even worse, what happens in hypnosis. So until there's enough confidence and understanding developed, it can be challenging to maintain your belief and to answer the questions that come up. It can be challenging to stand up strong against ignorance and misunderstanding and skepticism. So I encourage my students to stay connected to each other in the time in between our classes. We always have a private face group group Facebook group as a place to connect and I also have a group that's for all of my students and graduates so that they have a broader group that they can connect with as well and it's a place for them to vent and to get support if they're struggling and a place to stay connected and share their successes and a place to bring up the questions and misconceptions that people present to them so they can get some feedback as to how best to address it When we're doing this work, that until we're confident ourselves, that we borrow confidence and belief from somebody else so that we're not, again, having our confidence chipped away. Another one of the occupational hazards is boundaries. This field tends to attract people who are really empathic and sincerely want to be of service to others But as a result, they can forget that this is a business and allow their personal time to be infringed upon by clients. So I can be guilty of this. For a long time, I wanted to take my Wednesdays off, so I would cross that day off in my day timer, and then a client would call and need a spot, and I would have no openings that suited them or no openings, period, so I'd give them a Wednesday spot. And then I would think, well, if I'm going to come in for one person, I might as well come in for two, and I'd give away another spot. And then I would think, well, if I'm going to come in for two, I might as well do a half day. And before I knew it, my Wednesday off would have six clients booked into it. I found a sneaky way to solve this problem. I'm now renting my office from 930 until 4 on Wednesdays so that I actually cannot come in. And this is probably like the only approach that has worked for me in the entire time I've been doing this. I just don't respect a day crossed out on my day planner. And this um, inability to set boundaries can show up in other ways as well. Working evenings and weekends when you would prefer not to, letting clients go over your allotted appointment time, allowing a client to be late on payments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When I talk about this with my students, I tell them to think about booking a doctor's appointment. We know we can only see the doctor when the doctor has office hours. We can't expect that the doctor is going to meet us in the evening because that's when we're available or that the doctor will give up a lunch break to squeeze us in. So the fact is, this is the client's goal. If there is somebody who should be rearranging their schedule to make time for the appointment, it's the client. But we make these allowances. Why? Because we want to help, because we don't know when the phone is going to ring again if we're new to hypnosis. And so we see people, even when we don't want to, out of fear or desperation or because we're not thinking like a business person. One of the things that I really like about being a hypnotherapist is the autonomy. I get to see who I want, when I want, charge what I want, work on the goals I like to work on. And all of this is really wonderful. So I really recommend envisioning what you want your practice to look like. How many clients would you like to see per week or per day? How many hours do you want to work? How long are your sessions going to be? Are there certain days you would like to work on or not work on? How about working evenings or weekends? Would you prefer it to be in the daytime? So I really encourage you to think about your preferences Set your schedule, a schedule that works for you, and then stick with that schedule. You might reevaluate every now and then, and as circumstances change, you might make allowances. So, for example, if I have a client in crisis, I might squeeze in an appointment on a day I wouldn't normally work. But remember to prioritize your needs and your schedule. Trust me, if your clients want or need to see you badly enough, they will make it happen. And also, the clients who are willing to make their personal growth a priority, those are the ones that you want as a client. You want a client who's willing to do what's required to get their results. That's the client who's going to be successful. And so, like I said, come up with a schedule that works for you. Set it in stone. (laughs) Don't start letting people chip away at your time. That's just going to lead to resentment and frustration. And again, burnout. Now, the last occupational hazard I'm going to mention is stuff around money. (laughs) Ah, As I mentioned previously, this field attracts giving, empathetic people. They sincerely want to help the world. But this can lead to us feeling uncomfortable charging for our services. So we all come in with stuff around money. It's not spiritual to ask for money. Money is in low supply. We have to work hard for money. We can't make money doing something we love. Money is the root of all evil, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff that we pick up growing up. Not to mention that a new hypnotherapist may feel like they don't have the experience to charge comparably to a more experienced hypnotherapist. So my suggestion, if you have negative beliefs around money, work on them, right? As you know, whatever is in your subconscious mind will drive your behavior. So if you want this to be a business, not a hobby, you need to get good with making money, asking for money, feeling deserving of money, all of that good stuff. You also want to price yourself comparable to other hypnotherapists, regardless of your level of experience. Imagine that a potential client is calling around trying to find a therapist, and they're asking for the prices of said therapists, and the prices they get quoted are 150, 140, 130, 155, and 75. What are they going to think about the person who's charging 75 bucks? They're going to think that they don't know what they're doing. A client who is serious about making changes will pay what the therapist is asking, even if it's a stretch for them. When you undercut your colleagues, you not only make yourself look bad, you make your whole profession look bad. People are not going to want to work with you if you appear to be lacking in confidence. And we are already having to compete with stage hypnotists and street hypnotists and all the misconceptions people have about hypnosis. We're having to compete with other therapists. So we don't want to be undercutting, charging less than what our service actually is worth. Because then again, I said competing with stage hypnosis. What I mean by that is people have a lot of misconceptions about what hypnosis is based on what they see in stage shows. We need to legitimize this field. We need to come across as professional. If we start charging very little, we do not look professional. This is a service that provides a lot of benefit to the client, and we need to charge what that service is worth. There are people who don't take hypnotherapy seriously, again, confusing us with stage or street hypnotists, They see it as mind control or party games. When we undercut our prices, we're making ourselves look unprofessional. We're feeding into all of those misconceptions, all of that bad reputation that's associated with hypnosis. So you owe it to your colleagues and your profession, as well as yourself, to charge what the transformation is worth. People undercharge due to lack of confidence, fear that they're not going to get clients if they charge more or because they're inexperienced. So if you're tempted to undercharge for those reasons, work on yourself so that you can confidently charge what your services are worth and prove to yourself that clients are still going to come to you even if you're charging the going rate. So I hope that this has given you kind of a heads up as to some of the things that may arise while you embark on your profession and some ideas as to what you can do to handle those occupational hazards. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I do have classes starting in September, both in Victoria, BC. Those classes meet once a month for about a year, one weekend a month. I also have classes online same curriculum, the classes are interactive I hold classes through Zoom so that we can see each other and hear each other and use breakout rooms to have private practice sessions that I can review so if you're interested in training then please give me a, a shout, I am at 250-382-2485 or you can email me at info at horizoncenterhypnotherapy.com thank you so much okay, for <laughs> with correction with Campbell with Campbell Campbell, Campbell. Thumb. Thumb. Okay. Get your black belt in all things hypnotherapy and never blend <laughs>